Hello and welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. My name is Declan Mead. I'm the publisher here at the Stinging Fly. Joining me today is novelist Ronan Hessian. Ronan is an award-winning musician and writer. He wrote and recorded music as Mumlin Def Row and was nominated for a Choice Music Award for his album Dictionary Crimes. Leonard and Hungry Paul, Ronan's first novel, was published by Blue Moose Books in March 2019. Since then, it has been shortlisted in various categories at the Booksellers Association Books Are My Bag Awards, the Unpost Irish Book Awards, the Kerry Group Irish Novel Award, the Dawkey Literary Awards, the Society of Authors McKittrick Prize and the British Book Awards. Ronan has chosen to read Eight Days by Zhu Jingji, a story first published in our special translation issue in summer 2013. Zhu Jingji is an acclaimed Chinese author who has written extensively for the stage and screen, as well as fiction and poetry. Eight Days was translated from the Chinese by Jeremy Chang, who is himself a novelist and short story writer. Without further ado, here's Ronan reading Eight Days by Zhu Jing's Chi. And this is in the form of a, a diary that begins on the 16th of November, 1966. Very cold today. It feels extra cold because the weather's just turned. The heating's come on and it's warm at home. In the morning, we sat by the courtyard wall, the south-facing corner with its piles of loose soil and torn paper, the only patch untouched by the wind. By we, I mean myself, Zheng Chao, Zheng Jing, and Yuan Jing. Yuan Jing said they'd formed a unit and got red guard armbands printed with the official stamp, occupying a whole block in the school, shoving the desks together, sleeping there at night. They wrote slogans across the white walls of the classrooms, and even in the toilets. While correcting teacher Hu's thinking, they shouted a chant that Chan Chua came up with. Hu monkey Hu, holding a ball in her hole. When the monkey smiles, the ball falls. Teacher who teaches Chinese. I saw her recently, standing by the second-story staircase. No one was paying her any attention. As I walked past, she was singing a song about a sad maiden, something to do with resisting the Japanese. At the time, I had a strange feeling that when she finished her song, she jumped from the second story. I waited, but she didn't jump. Her son sat at the other end of the corridor, pretending to play, but really watching her. She once praised me for having talent. I should delete that last sentence, too bourgeois. We talked about it all morning and decided to form a unit of our own. Yuang Jiang said the place to print armbands was near Kaishiku, past a place called Daji Bridge. There are many gangsters in that area. Their last time there, they were robbed of three yuan. Zheng Jin said he'd bring a carving tool with him. Even though it lacked the blade, it could still scratch up on someone's face. I felt revved up by his words. We prepared to set off the next day, as soon as the grown-ups left for work. We had five yuan between us. I contributed one. 17th of November. Today we took the number one bus to Jidan. I was the only one who had a ticket. The other three slipped on without one. I did too, but worried the whole journey. And in the end, bought one before getting off. How silly. From Jidan, we headed south. We arrived at Daji Bridge. All four of us were anxious. 
I put my hand in my trouser pocket, which held a weight from a set of scales, hopefully sufficiently hefty to cause some damage to a gangster's head. It was cold and heavy in my pocket. I couldn't warm it. Zheng Jin whistled as he strolled, his hand inside his jacket. The carving tool he held was our heartbeat. The event we feared never happened. The wind was strong, blowing us into a run. After Daji Bridge, we walked into a rope shop to ask for directions to the place where we could print out our armbands. The old man said a name that sounded something like something hutong. This was the first time I smelled dye. We could detect it from some distance away. Later I learned that this was the odour of yellow. Each colour has its own scent. Yellow makes me think of illness. A young lady served us. She reminded me of Liu Nai Ping's older sister from flat number three. I once went swimming with her. She wore a red swimsuit. I believed at the time that only female students at college should be called young ladies. And even then, only ones like Zoya. Liu Hulan didn't resemble one, nor did Zhu Ying Tai, nor did my own sister. She wore a face mask, only her eyes showing, but I could still tell when she was smiling. All four of us were a little tense, a little awkward. We ordered 21 armbands, four inches wide, with gold lettering, 20 cents each. That was as many as we could afford. I think she realised that. As she wrote out our receipt, the kettle on the stove behind her began bubbling. The room was hung all around with pennants, bearing various words and pictures, the bright red fabric bearing down on us from all four walls. I thought of the illustration of D'Artagnan, kneeling to kiss the Empress in the Three Musketeers. The Empress's feet are invisible beneath her long dress, her hand resting on her puffed-out skirt, D'Artagnan's lips just touching her fingertips. I always imagined I'd perform this action when I was grown up. Strike this paragraph, it's too bourgeois. She was smiling, asking if we wanted to look inside the workshop. We said we'd like to. She brought us into a room with a wet floor, The workers glanced at us. I didn't understand anything. The printed cloths were still sodden, all red, and on each of them were the words, Red Guards, over and over, covered with a layer of rice chaff. She explained that this was to protect the yellow. When it was dry and the chaff was removed, the colour would be even brighter. It was noon and we had nothing to eat, so she gave us her lunchbox. She brought it in from home, and left it on the stove to stay warm. It contained just rice and cabbage with some tofu. She didn't eat well. When we left, she still hadn't taken off her face mask. She was very clean. We didn't have a chance to see what she looked like. Getting home on the number one bus was easy. The four of us slipped on through the doors on either side. The ticket money saved for our return trip to pick up the armbands. Before we said goodbye... Yuan Jiang asked me if I could guess the young lady's family background. I said I had no idea, and he said probably capitalist. I asked why. He said, didn't you see how beautiful she was? And also she was wearing a face mask, afraid of the stench of the dye. What he said made sense to me. 19th of November. More and more people are wearing red guard armbands in the street, and ours aren't ready yet. 
During the day, we hide in Jing Chow's house. We don't want to be outside, conspicuous without our armbands. Something might have happened to Zhang Chao and Zhang Jin's father. I saw him in the boiler room, carrying heavy radiators, but the two of them didn't say anything about him. 20th of November. Zheng Chao and Zheng Jing's father really is in trouble. In the morning, we were at home, desperate for the day to arrive, and we could pick up our armbands. Only with the armbands could we rise up and go so far as to denounce our parents. My older brother put a big poster on the wall. Revolution is not wrong. Rising up is right. The atmosphere at home was rather strained. 21st of November. Two more days. 23rd of November. This morning we took the bus and got caught by the ticket inspector, all four of us. She wanted to take us to the central station. We were all shaking. Fortunately, so many people got on at Wang Fujing stop that we were able to slip away in the crowd. After that, we didn't dare board any more buses and walked all the way to Kashaku. We collected 21 armbands. The young lady was there again, looking different from six days ago. When we came in, she had a scarf over her head, mopping the floor of the workshop. Later we worked out that someone must have shaved her head. A piece of white cloth was sewn across her chest with the words, Bourgeois Traitor, Liu Liwan. She still wore her face mask and, all the time she served us, kept her head lowered. I felt as if six days had transformed this young lady into an old woman, or even a crone. The stove still held a kettle and her lunchbox. A man walked in to make tea. He ordered her to remove her mask. She was motionless for a moment before plucking it off. She looked at it as I'd imagined, very pale, like a picture never seen before. As we walked away, she was already picking up her broom again. She said goodbye softly when we left. The mask dangled in front of her chest, not hiding the white cloth. I read the words again swiftly. Yuan Jiang was right. She was a capitalist. A person inscribed with words became those words, and nothing more than those words. As we walked down the street, I noticed more and more people had been labelled. Even some of the red guards were burdened with this white cloth and black lettering. Everyone was just a line of characters. The four of us put on the armbands as soon as we emerged from the Hutong. Our arms became glorious, weighty. Only swinging them vigorously made them feel natural. Arms swaggering, we strutted into a small eating house and ordered four portions of roast meat. We split the food open, pouring soy sauce and vinegar in great streams that splashed across the table. The waiter saw the mess we were creating, but didn't dare say a word. The movement of our arms was awkward, as if we just received our vaccinations. So thank you very much, Ronan, for reading that story. Um, and we'll start, as we usually do on the podcast, with asking you why you chose to read this piece. What appealed to me about it is that I thought it worked well uh, as a story in its own right. Uh, I didn't, at that stage when I first encountered it, and indeed when I selected it for this podcast, I didn't know anything about the personal history of the writer or about the sort of cultural context for this. It struck me as... 
uh, a story that can be read either with or without that context, there is a sense of foreboding in it. I think there's a sense of simplicity in it. Uh, and I think that gives it an almost sort of parable feel about it. And there's a sense of something bad is about to happen. Sure. And then you, I suppose when you do the background research, you kind of realise, oh, this is actually, hap- this actually happened in, in, you know, during the Cultural Revolution in China, um, quite likely. Um, and, you know, so the, the writer was born in 1952, I think, so probably was around, you know, in his teenage years. Um, so you were in touch with the translator and found out a bit more as well. Yeah, I was in touch with uh, Jeremy Tiang, who, who, who translated uh, the short story, to try and understand where the writer was coming from. The writer, as you say, was, was about 14 uh, when the Cultural Revolution started in 1966, and it ran for 10 years right. until uh, 1976. And what that meant for him was that he was made to leave Beijing and go to work uh, in a sort of, I won't quite say labour camp, but do sort of forced labour, as many young people were. Yeah. Uh, which meant that he only came back to Beijing in his late 20s and got a chance to go to university. So there's a whole generation, and there's a generation of literature around that, which is called sort of scar literature. Um, And the writer, in talking to Jeremy Tiang, the translator, said, treat it as a piece of fiction. Uh, Though Jeremy took the view that it would map the writer's life very closely. It's the first part of a collection of stories, a collection of 43 stories uh, called uh, Nine Buildings or Ninth Building as well, which is a reference to where the author grew up. He grew up in a series of apartment blocks and he was in building number nine. Yeah. Uh, and the stories take you uh, through that period of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, the writer now is, you know, much older. It's a time for reflection. But I think what... Jeremy made some interesting points about it, that this is the opening story, so it's a good one to read in its own right. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting that the writer is complicit in this. A lot of the, the scar literature, and, and Jeremy took the view that it was probably outside the kind of body of scar literature because it wasn't either talking specifically about trauma, uh, nor was it railing against what was happening. So it leaves, I think as good writing often does, it leaves the reader with choices about how they want to interpret the narrator here. And the diary style uh, is very interesting. You have the, you know, obviously the story, we have people who are being corrected or, uh, you know, being, you know, being under pressure to conform to the new uh, ideology. But also you have, the, the writer is not quite, up to speed either. There are a couple of places where the writer corrects himself uh, for lapses into sort of bourgeois thinking and bourgeois language. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, reading it again myself and also listening to you read it now, um, you know, I was thinking about, well, it could, yeah, I mean, it it sounds like a story, but then you do know that it happened. But, um, you know, what's happening in real life now could provide (laughs) similar source of material for for all of us you know in, in the sense that you know it definitely sounds dystopian as in it could well be entirely fictional and there are fictional you know works that that are not based on reality that you, that you would read possibly in the same way um but it's just a it's just the fact that this did happen to be true um, it's kind of a background power to it but not necessarily the source of it I mean the power is there anyway I think, yeah, you, I think you, you, if you look at 
Chinese writers writing today, if you yeah. look at Ma Zhan, if you look at Yan Lianka, you'll see how they they have an almost absurdist mm. uh, streak, a, a satirical streak, but they're very coy about some of the references. Yeah. Like here we have references to uh, the Red Guard, who, who are essentially uh, in the Cultural Revolution, which which followed the failure of the Great Leap Forward, where tens of millions of people died. And it was really about uh, targeting the residual uh, traditional cultural influences and also what we're seeing as the bourgeois capitalist influences. And there were a cohort of students, younger people, who were effectively their support was enlisted in the form of the Red Guard. And you can see how simplistic and how brutalistic and how how there isn't really an alternative ideology proposed here at all. They don't stand for a whole lot. uh, And there's no real intellectual point made here. They they have, you know, five yuan between them. They have a blunt carving tool. It it is a sort of dad's army of teenagers who who are leading this. Yeah, and he's catching himself as well, kind of, you know, regulating what his, his own diary as he writes it, you know, because, he's a, you know, he says he has to, he'll have to strike that paragraph, for example, or that phrase is the wrong phrase to use, or, you know, so that's another interesting dynamic about it. I know from following you on Twitter that you, you read a lot and that um, a lot of what you read, at least recently, is fiction and translation, and you've chosen a translated piece today. Um can you tell me about your reading generally and how your interest in translated fiction has developed? Yeah, I, I read a lot of uh, fiction and translation. I think initially I started probably, um, you know, my reading habits would have, I wasn't a big reader as a child. I would have read a lot of what was on the recommended reading in school. Uh, my brother, who's a priest, had studied English in UCD, so there was a box of books and I would have read whatever was there. Uh, and then I would have said, well, I'm going to read classics, uh, you know, really Penguin classics for about 10 years to try and get to know the best in 20th century classics. But I came to realization maybe about 10 years ago that that this huge bias is in that, particularly in terms of male writing, in terms of, you know, literature in, written in English or maybe only translated from Europe or, or Russia. And I realized there were huge gaps. Uh, and one statistic that I always... I repeat a lot on Twitter, but it really uh, fascinates me is that 95% of the world's population is from countries where English is not the first language. Uh, and so I've always tried to broaden out my reading. It's all in English. It's not like, it's not like I have to read it with subtitles. You know, yeah. it, it's, So to me, it, it, there isn't a difference between tra- translated literature and, yeah. and non-translated. But I just look at my bookshelves and realize how much poorer they'd be without translation. And also I've been inspired by by people who were real advocates. I think the late Eileen Battersby, I think, was, uh, I love the way she wrote about books and uh, she made me quite excited about to read more broadly. Uh, you know, I think Declan O'Driscoll writes her well in the Irish Times. I think the more I've read, the more I got involved in following Women in Translation Month, which happens every August over the last few years. My reading taste has broadened out in the last five years, but but it wasn't always so. Yeah. So, and I very much see myself as still in very much an apprenticeship as a reader to yeah. try and read more widely. Yeah. Um, and I, I was reading an interview um, you did with Totally Dublin, which is back um, around the time the third album came out. Um, and so it was eight years ago in September of 2012. 
And you spoke there about the process of, of writing songs and particular writing songs about family life, which you were trying to do on that third album. And, and some of the fiction you had read that had inspired you while you were writing the, the songs. And, but I was just wondering, had you also begun writing fiction at that point? Or can you, could you tell us a bit about making the transition from songwriting to fiction? I hadn't, I really only started writing fiction in sort of 2017, I think, around then. Uh, Leonard and Hungry Paul was the first thing I really wrote. I, one thing that I did alongside that album, Dictionary Crimes, is I wrote a blog. Uh, and I used it not, I basically discussed one song per week, but I also started writing a lot about songwriting and the business of creativity. Yeah. And my mindset at that stage was my day job was becoming busy. My children were very young. I had done three albums and I really sort of felt I was saying goodbye to creativity at that point. Right. Uh, and I had sort of made a decision to uh, retire unnoticed from uh, the music scene. Uh, and it took me about five years to realize that creativity is not what you do. It's, it's just part of who you are. It's like your sense of humor. Yeah. So it's not something you can suddenly decide to stop having a sense of humor. Uh, and what happened is that after a few years away from it, I noticed there was a gathering of creative energy, uh, a gathering of ideas, and I had nowhere to put them. I, I felt I wasn't satisfied just meeting up with friends and, and dumping my worldview on them. Uh, so I decided to, to try and write something. Uh, I, I got a new diary at the beginning of 2017, uh, that I decided I would try and fill. I said I'd write, I had a sense of this character called Leonard, uh, and I would try and write about him every day until yeah. I got to know him. And then after two days or three days, I said, forget it, I'll just try a novel. And I just kept going. And I wrote the first draft in three months. It came out pretty quickly. Right. Okay. And that was just writing at home for yourself. And what stage did you show uh, work to anyone or any of that to anyone? Uh, I just showed it to, I really waited. When I was As I was working through it, I might have read a couple of chapters to my wife. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, I sent it to, uh, I didn't submit it really well, like Blue Moose were the first people I sent it to. You yeah. know, I hadn't uh, been hawking it around as such. Uh, and I didn't really know any writers. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend of mine, Mike Stevens, who writes uh, books for a younger age group, for sort of uh, early teens. So he read it. And it was good, actually. And I read stuff for him. It's good to show it to a writer who doesn't write the same stuff as you because they don't try and turn you into them and you don't try and turn them into you. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, Kevin Duffy and Blue Moose was probably about the third or fourth person to read it. I haven't right. been. And can you just t talk a little bit about that uh, with the relationship with Kevin, how that came about? Was it just a submission or...? It was just a submission, yeah. I hadn't been in touch with him. I'd read a couple of Blue Moose books, in particular uh, a book called Man with a Seagull on His Head by Harriet Page. Uh, and when I was working on Leonard and Hungry Paul, I really didn't think it would be published. Right. Not not through any self-deprecating. I just didn't, I assumed the publishing world was pretty similar to the music world. Uh, and I didn't think it was something that was easy to pitch, easy to market. Uh, and I thought, I would write one book, I'd submit it. If it didn't work, I'd, I'd do another. And if that didn't work, I'd just do something else. Um, but when I read Man with a Seagull on His Head, I sort of thought, this seems like something kindred here. And I found a bit more out about Kevin. I like, coming from an independent music background, I like the sort of slightly punk, messy, you know, very natural environment of independent uh, artistic enterprises. Uh, and so I, I you know, I, my preference was to, be, to work with an indie publisher. But, you know, I, as I always say, you know, had it 
had the only offer been from a rat poison com- company, I would have let them publish it, you know. But so I just sent it to Kevin on a Friday evening, having worked on it. Uh, yeah. He gets up early because he's dogs. Yes. Uh, and he emailed me. I sent it like midnight on a Friday. He came back at seven a.m. the next morning and said, "Send me the rest of it." Yeah. And then the following week, I was in books upstairs, the uh, the bookshop in, yeah. in Dublin, and I got a lovely email from him. Actually, I'd seen him on Twitter. He said, I've just finished this manuscript. I can't wait to tell the whole world about it. And he had a line from it. And I was like, holy cow. So I told my wife, and then, you know, stunned on my lunch break in a bookshop, I got a lovely email with basically uh, his review of the book and saying, right. we'd love to publish it. He sent me a contract the following Monday and that's it. And, and, and my second book is out with him next year and I'm doing another one and yeah. hopefully many more. And you do mention the editor in your acknowledgements in, yeah. in, the, in the novel. And so maybe just talk a little bit about the editorial process beyond, you know, that after, so what happened after the, that, that lovely email? So, so uh, we went, uh, I submitted it to Blue Moose. Uh, Blue Moose is Kevin and Heather Duffy, husband and wife team. My editor is Lynn Webb, who's uh, Heather's mother. Uh, Kevin's mother-in-law. So Lynn is a 73-year-old former professional wrestler. Okay. Uh, and she is a brilliant editor. Uh, the book the book didn't change. Like, there were no sort of structural changes yeah. to it. And there were no, uh, they didn't force me to put it in a particular direction. The Blue Moose attitude is, you write what you want. And yeah. the counterpoint to that then is, it has editorial challenge to tighten it up. Mm. So it was really... We went through quite a lot of iterations and really just tightening up word level, sentence level, deepening the characters. Yeah. It was very much a collaborative process, which I was used to from music. You know, yes. I was used to working with musicians where you'd sit down and they'd say, this bit doesn't work for the bass, we need to change it. So I, I didn't, I, I'm open to working with people. Mm. Uh, and, and I feel that the, the work has its own personality that we all have to draw it out rather than yeah. saying, this is my baby and I'm it's, it's compromising. I never try and make it about me. Yeah. So we went over a period of, of about three months, four months editing it. Uh, and I learned a lot of maybe a better reader actually editing the editing process and I'm just finishing that process now in my second book and going through it again uh, it really does deepen a book and, and it's, it's often hard afterwards to point exactly how that happens but yeah. it's about inconsistencies sometimes a, a, a comment will just be is there more you could do here and my approach to editing is an editor can point at the um, the problems mm-hmm. but I always say to Lynn you, you point out the problems but don't solve them right I'll solve them. Yeah. Uh, so don't say, change it to this word. Here's an alternative phrasing. I don't like somebody inserting their language into my work, but they can say, this is too clunky. This is pretentious. This is, you know. I did there's humane ways, you know, of saying things like that. And one of Lynn's great phrases is, this is not up to your usual standard. There you go. Yes. I, I, <laughs> I might borrow that one. <laughs> I think I've used it myself, actually. <laughs> but, um, I mean, the, the response to the book has been great. I mean, in terms of the reviews and then all those prizes that I, I mentioned at the, in the introduction. But also, I mean, I still regularly see uh, responses from readers, usually on Twitter, um, you know, where, where they're singing the book's praises and recommending it to people. So, I mean, I just wonder how does that feel as that's happening? Um, and has the response to the book been different to, in any way, to, than what you would, expe- would had expected in the build-up to publication. I, I honestly thought when the book came out that it might just sink and not be noticed. I thought the UK book community would think it was an Irish book and the Irish book community would think it was an, an English book. Mm-hmm. Um, but what has happened really is that it's become a sort of word of mouth 
uh, you know, book where, you know, and I, was, I was saying to Kevin recently, you know, we talked about flattening the curve, you know, in the, in the context of a pandemic. Indie publishing is like flattening the curve. You don't have a big launch and then it either succeeds or fails yeah. and then they move on to the next book. Yeah. It happens over a period of time. Yeah. But yeah, it, like the, the proofs, the first proofs, started circulating two years ago and pretty much every day since then on Twitter mm. somebody has read it yeah. and got in contact and that's been a beautiful thing uh, it's been on a personal level it's been uh, I, I like to connect with readers I don't like the idea of artists being separate or yeah. above I like it to be a flashed um, relationship and Twitter allows yeah. that um, but also as a writer I think every time whatever you get either praise or criticism you kind of have to hand it back and start I think it can be I think if I'd gone with a bigger publisher, there'd be a lot of pressure to do a sequel or something like that again. And my second book is very different. Yeah. And Blue Moose are very comfortable with that. Yeah. Uh, so one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in my, in my day job was it's good to get used to disappointing people. Yeah. And I think writing or doing anything creative, you have to be able to live with the fact that people who were, all the people who said nice things might come back and say, oh, I don't like this new one as much, or it's yeah. not the same. And you have to say, I believe in the work and it'll find its own yeah. its own way. So it's been it's been a really lovely experience. Um, but I'd be careful not to get addicted to pleasing people or delivering the same thing again. Sure. Yeah. And just in terms of the response, I mean, has it um, has it been like? Was there a me- like? Would you describe it as a message? Was there a message that you wanted the book to convey, to communicate to people? Um, do you view it in that way at all, or is it a bad story or character, which is kind of? I think there is a message in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, one thing that's probably unfashionable uh, is for a book to stand for something, yeah. or to propose a way of life, sure, or to propose an outlook. Yeah, uh, I think it's probably more fashionable for books to critique the world and to have detachment. Yeah, uh, and especially when that message is. On the positive side, people can you know, be careful. People don't perceive that as whitewashing what is, you know, a very complex society and a lot of complex problems. But the, the, in general, the book was trying to pay attention to people who are overlooked as a counterpoint to argument, noise, competitiveness, the value of silence, of of spending time with people. The and it isn't all in bet in on yeah. sincerity. Yeah. The, the book is uh, uh, so and it's interesting at the moment it, the book has just come out in the US and I, I you know I'm not sure whether it's it's been received as as uh, openly in a way like some people have really liked it other people yeah. are very puzzled by the book yeah uh, and whereas I think in the UK and Ireland a lot of readers and book lovers are quiet people yeah and I think they reacted to a celebration of that side of life because so often it's the loudest voice that becomes dominant and maybe that's why we are, we are where we are in society because yeah. we're listening to the wrong people so I think a celebration of the value of quiet people kind people yeah. uh, is something that people uh, are picking up on yeah now you had you said there that you resisted the idea of you would resist the idea of a sequel. But I do want to ask you how you think Hungry Paul would be would have gotten on during the pandemic and lockdown. And crucially, has the Quiet Club been moved onto Zoom? <laughs> um, the I think he would be the same as always, right? Uh, and I, I think 
one of the messages in the book, I think, is that there's a tendency to, at times of upheaval or, or, or change, to overemphasize what's changing and to underestimate what's not changing. Yeah. So the analogy I, I, I use is like, there's a reason why sailors navigate by stars and not by waves. You know, like you need to always pay attention to what's not changing. Right. Uh, and what Hungry Paul and Leonard, to, to, to an extent as well, have is they are grounded in that. Yeah. So they are not thrown by change. So this kind of environment, um, ironically, they're, they're quite adaptable for that. So yeah. I think this environment would be fine for them. Right. The, the quiet club, uh, yeah, there were a few quiet clubs held, a couple of universities and a couple of bookshops okay. that held them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think, if nothing else, I think a few more people have bought bird feeders and, and stuff like that. So, <laughs> yes. so in, in practical ways, yeah. the you know, if you were to say, has the book had an impact aside from you know, the number of people who've bought it or read it, yeah. you know, you could, there, there are other indicators yeah. that, that, that its message has carried, yeah. not just that people have picked it up. Yeah. And I got a sense, going back to that interview about the music, that you obviously, that, uh, you, so you produced three albums and I think you said that you'd written 30 songs maybe during a 20-year career and that, but that you, you would stick with a song until you got, got it written. And so you set yourself challenges also in terms of mixing up the, 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 the the sound within within an album or the or the skills on display within a performance, I suppose. And so, how does that transfer into fiction? And um, and maybe that's an opportunity as well to tell us a bit more about the second novel. Well, I think what I always tried to do in, in songwriting, like I did thirty songs, and they're all different. You know, yeah. uh, I, I, no, I, I think you can see a common thread through them. But subject matter, I don't think I revisited. Uh, similar themes over and over again uh, and I think it's the same approach I have in writing where I try and get a sense of it's almost like it's sort of a midwife sort of role where you sense there's something a story needs and you try and execute it in the way that it comes to you so the stories uh, whether they're expressed in songs or, or in prose are not just an expression of me my worldview there's a sort of sense of something gathering and it needs a certain treatment uh, and it's trying to work out what's the treatment that's appropriate to that. So my second novel is called uh, Panenka, uh, and uh, we're very close to finishing editing on that. It'll be out next May. It's uh, it's a book in a way that has some of the common themes around human nature, around family. It isn't as uh, warm a book, although it's quite, uh, when I say as warm, I think it probably got more darkness in it, but it's also it's sort of, Emotional side is more intense. Uh, and the story, uh, you know, I describe it in two ways. One as a sort of redemption story about headaches, the other as a platonic love story. Right. Uh, and really, uh, one of the motivations in writing it was, if one of the motivations in Leonard Hungry Paul was about kindness and silence being undervalued, I, I really have been thinking for quite a number of years about the extent to which people not accepting themselves is a feature of, of life or people um, not forgiving themselves. Yeah. Uh, and so that has uh, really pushed um, that story on. And also the way in which people carry so much of their past in their lives and the need to sort of learn how to liberate yourself from that. And, and that's really at the core of the story. Yeah. And you're an incredibly busy person and you've got... Um, two boys and your wife and your busy job and you read a lot and you're 
obviously creative person and now writing away. Uh, have, have you like has it been have you been able to keep writing through the last few months? Um, and how do you manage generally just kind of carving out time for writing? I usually write at night, so my kids go to bed. It's about ten p.m. I write, um, and until about midnight or so. Yeah. Uh, editing I do at weekends because I think editing you need to be fresher writing in a way the, the more your defences are down the more freely you write I think whereas yeah. editing you need to be quite disciplined and focused I, I do have quite a full life but I try and keep it simple you know I I, I eat simply my, my my pleasures are simple I just read yeah. and I just write and I yeah. play with my family yeah. um, and I've always had that sort of balance. Even when I was in secondary school, I had a lot of extracurricular things. And I'm actually quite a well-rested person. Even though I'm busy, yeah, I, yeah. I try, uh, because I'm used to it and because I'm doing things, both in my day job and my creative life that I really love, there, it doesn't feel like there's a huge amount of effort in them. Yeah. The other thing about uh, creativity as well, creativity, insofar as it has a, a tangible manifestation, it's in the form of energy. Yeah. So you'll get ideas for a book, but the the you'll get an allocation of energy that comes with that. Yeah. So it's never that I'm looking to dig deep and trying to come up with something. It's it's, it's like having it, you know, when you have a, a disc pressing on a nerve in your back, it's kind of that sort of feeling yeah. that it, it needs to be, or a cow that needs to be milked. It's that sort of feeling. So there's a sense of relief and release that comes with writing that uh, has a certain energy that, that fuels the process. But I do need to do more fun stuff, I think. I do think I need to just do some more silly stuff. And yeah. I need to, you know, it's great following football for that reason, you know, because it, it, football kind of either really matters and kind of doesn't matter yeah, at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, I think having children in my life means, you know, I play a lot of ping pong, I play a lot of pool, I play yeah. a lot of uh, table hockey. Yeah. You know, I do watch a lot of internet memes and stuff on, on yeah. the TV. So, I've, right. I, so that, that all... I try not to. It, it feels like I'm uh, have a healthy enough balance. But I, yeah. but I think I'll do I'll do another book for um, Blue Moose, which I'll probably start writing next summer. And after that, I might take my my own feeling is that I'll take a sabbatical for a few years. Okay, so three albums, three books. Yeah, I'll have okay. three albums, three books by the time I'm fifty. Will be next three films. So. Yeah, who yeah. knows? Who knows? Maybe maybe <laughs> yeah. Who knows? Uh, and it's and it's actually one thing about music I, that gives me confidence is that I wasn't afraid to just stop doing it. Yeah. You know, I didn't identify with it, and I, I still don't identify as a writer. You know, I, yeah. I I I do books and I write them, but it wouldn't bother me if in a few years' time nobody had read my books or, or had forgotten about them or people yeah. didn't, you know, call me a writer. I'll be, you know, I'm, I'm not, that doesn't trouble me at all. Okay, I could just picture maybe in the future that there will be some kind of retrospective where there will be, you know, readings and gigs and, you know, films and <laughs> operas. And <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic attitude and, you know, and I love... The novel and I'm looking forward to the next one so thank you very much uh, that is it for this month um, thanks to Ronan for reading and for the really engaging discussion thanks to you all for listening and a big thanks to the Arts Council as well for whose support makes this podcast and everything else we do here at the Stingy Fly possible if you like the podcast do tell your friends about it or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts thanks again keep safe and talk to you soon